Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi everyone, I'm Catherine May and this is the Wintering Sessions. How are you all doing? Yeah, I can hear you replying, don't worry. It's been, well, I don't know. I don't think any one of us knows where to put our heads right now. I'm standing in my kitchen. Spring is breaking out. I have, and I'm counting here. Four crocuses, one daffodil, two wood pigeons trying to mate. I think I can hear a robin, but I can't see him. Earlier, a big flock of starlings all landed in the ash tree that overhangs my garden at once, and they made the most incredible noise. (sighs) I feel like we're all clinging to these things at the moment. And well, we should... There's absolute tragedies unfolding all across the world. And we're all, all of us, doing our best to bear witness to those. And every one of us is doing what we can. But you know what? You need permission to turn off as well. I know that the people who are being directly affected can't turn off. But this is a long haul. And nobody is helping by getting themselves stressed, distressed, unable to function. It's so important to take great care of the people around you as well. This isn't some kind 
of a situation where you have to demonstrate that you care. No decent person is looking for your proof. It's okay to stop scrolling. Maybe think about watching the news at a set time once a day, just like you would have done 15 years ago. That felt like a time when we could get the measure of the news, when we weren't living it. We've all been through a lot. I just wanted to say that. Go outside and breathe the air whenever you can. And my, all my heart and soul is with the people who are suffering. Anyway, I've got a really good conversation to introduce you to today. Really, one of the first people that I thought about when I started this podcast was Alex Hemmonsley, because she writes so interestingly about how we, I don't know, like live through and overcome the the problems that come up from being a woman, physical problems, ordinary problems. She doesn't talk about anything exceptional normally, but she talks about the everyday challenges of how it feels to live in a female body. But then Somebody to Love came out, which is the book we're talking about in this interview. And I think it's made her reach even deeper in a way that I found incredibly compelling. We'll outline the story of the interview, so I won't go into it now. But what I do want to say is I think... In this time when there's so little redemption, I think it's really brilliant to see a writer thinking hard about how their mind has been changed and how it's possible to understand the world in a completely different way and still be compassionate towards the person who has made your life change so abruptly. I don't think we talk about that enough the possibility of flexibility and pragmatism and love that doesn't flow in quite the way we wanted it to, but that is nevertheless still love. And we certainly don't talk enough about respect for people who have different identities and different bodies and different minds to us. So anyway, I was really excited to talk to her She's always great fun. She's always really thoughtful. And I think, you know, you'll all really enjoy listening to this interview and, you know, how it brings a different perspective on the trans issue, which shouldn't be an issue to me at all, but which apparently is. But I love to hear somebody who has been personally affected by somebody realising they're trans and who still comes out fighting for that person rather than wanting to punish them. Take a listen anyway. I'll be back a bit later. Alex, welcome to the Wintering Sessions. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me. I have been you know, wanting to talk to you about this particular book, I think, for a long time, because it's such an interesting 
turn of events for you, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, no, total pleasure. But also I think because it does this rare thing which shows a writer emotion changing and learning like a different perspective on the world, like in the middle of it. I think that's a really thrilling thing to read personally. Wow, thank you. No one has put it like that, but that is exactly what it felt like Yeah. while I was writing it. I felt like my brain at the time was as if it were a laptop with too many tabs open, just that kind of faint fan noise, <laughs> heat mm. coming from somewhere within. And I couldn't just think my way through the situation I was in. I sort of had to write my way through it and then in the editing, understand myself better. And I was really lucky to be able to do that. And I was mm. very well guided because I, I specifically chose the editor that I felt would be the wisest person to sort of perform that with rather than the sort of razzly dazzliest will make you a bestsellerist kind of deals that were being offered at the height of the sort of gender debate type thing a few mm. years ago. Oh, that's so interesting. And yeah, well, let's let's outline what this situation is for anyone who doesn't know it. So I'll, I'll let you tell it in your words. Well, I'd already written Running Like a Girl, which was about being a terrible runner, but embracing it anyway. Then I wrote Leap In, which was going to sort of, in some ways, replicate running like a girl. And instead of doing lots of marathons, I was going to do lots of sort of long swims and swim to Alcatraz and Ithaca. And, and, and then it ended up being a book about appreciating your limitations because I ended up doing IVF. And it was about embracing flaws and seeing strength from a new perspective and things like that, because I ended up doing a lot of cold water swimming. And then I thought I had it made. My son was born and everything was <laughs> looking great. Whatever will I find to write about next? I found myself pondering. <laughs> um, and it turned out that actually three things happened to me in quite close succession, which I don't think I could have survived, even though having three quite intense things happening so quickly was awful. The perspective that each lent the other ultimately turned out to be the thing that helped me survive. Mm. When I was very early in pregnancy, I went to have a test, which actually I heard the Daily, you know, the New York Times podcast had a whole podcast on last week, oh, wow. uh, a DNA blood test, which most people have to find out about the sex of their baby, because it's much more reliable than just looking on a scan. It also tests for all the sort of chromosome abnormalities that can happen. And that's why I wanted to have it, because at that point, my swimming book was around the corner and people were saying, oh, can you do this daring swim? Can you have this photo of you in the freezing cold sea? And I did. I, I was too scared to tell my publishers I was pregnant because I was only like six or seven weeks. Yeah. But I was didn't want to say no and be being shady. So I went to have all of these tests um, and it's a blood test. And the midwife who'd done the test, it was a private Thing, called me and said oh weird uh the tests have come back from the lab did you use a donor egg and I said no definitely not because anyone who's had IVF knows that the worst thing about IVF is getting the eggs out in the first, yeah, um, in the first, yeah. <laughs> and she said oh because you don't share any DNA with the baby which obviously provided almost exponential possibilities in ever varying levels of sort of sci-fi novel horror from 
another couple altogether's child mm. in me. And this was our last embryo. So there'd been a year of me trying all the other embryos we'd made, during which time I was thinking our embryo could have been born to somebody. It could be living in someone else's house now if there's just been like a label swap. It mm. could be an embryo that was made with my ex's sperm. It could be an embryo that was, you know, there were so many different levels of awfulness um, because it's a relatively new test and new science until sort of three or four years earlier, you wouldn't find out, you know, it would be like a kind of telenovela plot that the baby would be born and it wouldn't be the same colour as the father or whatever. Or right, yeah. um, Whereas this was like, there was no, the terrifying sentence, no legal precedent was used from time <laughs> to time. And as it all turned out, it was just a lab mistake. The, my son is entirely both of his uh, allotted parents. Um, but there was a good few weeks during which I was outside of legal precedent, outside, I was into new science. Wow. I was into things that people would call perhaps unnatural. Like, you know, if you just have mm. sex with your partner, you know that it's at least your baby even if you've got multiple partners and it could be a different father, most women or female body people having babies who have just had sex rather than IVF know that they're the yeah. mother. Whereas I was there, there was no novel that had dealt with this. There was no film. There was no kind it was just no kind of frame of reference emotionally. And then about three or four weeks before my son was born, I was sexually assaulted on a train. Someone groped me. Mm. Um, and he repeatedly said, and it went to court, and he was found innocent because of weird things to do with the angle of the CCTV. He repeatedly said he hadn't done it. It hadn't happened. And the male magistrate also said that he was finding the guy innocent because it would be very traumatic for him to be falsely accused and could have an impact on his life, a massive impact on his life. Yeah. And he also pointed out that you were pregnant and not rational necessarily. Yeah. Which I just and that was, the most was one of the breathtakingly things... misogynistic thing I've ever Yeah. Quite and a long that absolutely time. floored me because this guy was. Mm hammered like and he what he admitted to in court was 10 gin and tonics 10 pints and two bottles of white wine he'd been to a football match and that was what he was prepared to go on the record and say while also lying about having groped me and I had just thought for the entire you know nine months preceding the court case that the one thing I could rely on would be that the eight and a half months pregnant person that I could be re reliably Sober. understood to be sober <laughs> and therefore a reliable witness of what had happened mm. and and there was an, and there was another witness that came forward and said she'd seen it all happen and she'd been sitting behind me so I hadn't known that she was there it wasn't like it was my friend going oh yeah 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 it was a complete stranger and yeah my state of pregnancy was deemed to be more of a sort of cognitive impairment than all of the booze that this guy was prepared to talk about and then not around this time, but once my son was born, but before the court case, my baby, my co-parent um, realised that, that she had to transition. She was going to go through transition, kind of came out effectively. And that's usually the point when I have conversations like this, that people gasp because it's sort of like, it's the thing that your sort of 11 year old self would want to avoid at all costs. When actually... <laughs> It sort of turned into the making of me. And that's what this book's about, was because I'd been turned inside out 
so comprehensively by the preceding two things and their implications about what we think about a natural or a real or a proper woman as body and about gender politics that the sort of forced it, it just sort of raised everything to the ground I felt like a building mm. that had been in a terrible fire and only the few remaining sort of stones and steel girders were which was like a handful of friends that I could talk this through or kind of <laughs> people I trusted to read or to listen to or whatever that was all I had that popular culture was giving me Chris Kardashian Jenner and <laughs> You know, Disclosure, that amazing Netflix documentary hadn't been even released then. There was no template because I absolutely understood why my ex needed to transition. And it was a huge relief to find out that that was it. That was the problem. There wasn't something else that I couldn't understand as to why this person that I really loved was clearly in such extreme levels of torment at what we were understanding to be the happiest time in our lives. So, yeah, having confidently begun this sort of memoir journey almost (laughs) 10 years before, saying, I'm just a normal woman and any woman with a woman's body can do that. Now I realise that those broad brushstroke terms from a sort of smiley, you know, slightly curvy, possibly size 14 blonde white lady (laughs) was taking and making assumptions on a kind of sort of dizzying scale that I was then forced to re-examine, which, you know, was obviously incredibly painful. And I was grieving for my marriage and I was freaking out about how to be a single parent. And I was mourning lots of things that I thought I knew about myself. But actually, when something so radical like that happens, I was so, so far outside of normal by that point that it was sort of in for a penny and it absolutely proved to be the thing that's helped me to see the world entirely different, helped me to approach things completely differently. And obviously there are negatives, but on the whole, it has definitely been the pivot point at which I went from the first half to the second half of my life and realised that the second half could be this amazing re-embracing of all sorts mm. of things rather than the sort of, when I had my son, I was sort of thinking I'm I'm 40, it's all downhill from here, you know, all that kind of thing. Whereas <laughs> I sort of saw the whole of life just seemed completely different than I'd understood it to be for half my life. I hope half my life. Um, <laughs> yes, let's, let's, let's say that's a reliable. <laughs> making some more of my wild assumptions. <laughs> Yeah. You got very wary of those over the last few years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was an extremely traumatic period to live through, but also proved to be ultimately a really positive one. Yeah. An uber wintering. <laughs> An uber wintering. A multiple multi-headed hydra wintering. <laughs> yeah. They always are, I think. I mean, it just seemed to me, I mean, there's a, I think it's your mother in the book who says like, you've been radicalised by this. And it it seems to me like you're visited by what it really means to own a female body and a woman's body and the gap in between as well. It it's like the whole thing was enacted in your life in in one big cluster. Yeah, and and it sounds funny because it's such a sort of dog-eared term now, but I did feel really privileged to have had some of those experiences and understandings on a really visceral, personal level. So it's that expression I saw it on a T-shirt the other day. I don't know where it came from. Like, I can explain it to you, but I can't understand it for you. Mm. And I, I got to understand it within the cells of 
my body to turn up in sort of Harley Street where we've been sent by the IVF clinic to this most high powered gynecologist in the fetal expert in the world. And then for the to see the look of bafflement on the receptionist's face when she was saying, so you're here for the paternity test and me go and maternity test. (laughs) And the feeling of the sort of the cocktail of cortisol and adrenaline that sloshes through you in those moments where you realize you are not being seen as a normal case. You are, you are outside of what anyone's assumption just went, just standing at reception. I know that now in like, that day is imprinted in the DNA of my existence and will be until the day I die. So Mm. it taught me a lot about a trans person, but specifically a trans woman's experience of, well, uh, you're saying this, but I've never heard of that or that doesn't figure. It's perfectly simple. That's not the way things are. All those terms that you see online or in stand up or whatever, you know, uh, no, kind of as the punchline. <laughs> and, you know, I know what it feels like to stand at the reception and go, uh, yes, it is a maternity yes, Actually, yeah. Things yeah. happen that you haven't heard of and might not make you comfortable. <laughs> I mean, this poor receptionist was lovely. It was just, it's just an example. It's the, it, well, it's the experience of having to explain yourself and not having, I mean, I, I think, I think what you were really saying earlier was that, you know, you'd been able to assume that you were normal and understandable up until this point in your life. Yeah, and that I knew what normal was and that it was a static boundary that yeah. that rather than a sort of permeable <laughs> membrane mm. that we all sort of float <laughs> through. And similarly, the assault case taught me that you can feel enormous rage and aggrievement and fear and terror. Like I didn't get on a train by myself until my son was a toddler. I could only get on trains once with the buggy as a, like a physical barrier between me and people Mm. and to have those anxieties and to feel rigid with fury, a magistrate in that position who could make those assumptions and feel confident and calm saying those things in front of me. And also not see trans women as like a silent aggressor in that case. It's It was men. It was just cis straight men yep. who were making <laughs> these impacts on my life. And, and they are, to me, not problematically confusable with trans women. We, we, <laughs> we share a kind of perpetrator in that rather than the mm. cis man and the trans women sharing that position. And, and again... I felt very lucky, especially like in 2020 when all the Black Lives Matter stuff happened. And and I was watching friends kind of go through that process of like, but I don't say racist things, so don't call me a racist. And and I'd gone through that Mm. with transphobia two years earlier of, well, I'm not really transphobic so much as, but just blithe assumptions can still have transphobic impacts the same as blithe assumptions can have racist impacts and and I did feel quite quite lucky that I'd been able to undergo this sort of experience of understanding how fallible a privileged person's assumptions can be privately I'd done it in my home talking to my friends and on a micro scale and and I'd had really visceral emotional pinpoints and pivot points whereas everyone else last summer, whatever it was, more than 18 months now, seemed to be thinking, but I'm a good person. And me, and I was thinking, (laughs) oh yeah, I remember those days when I thought just (laughs) saying normal was a simple term. That's 
so funny because I had exactly the same impression because, uh, you know, like I'd learned I was autistic and I'd had to unlearn yes. everything I thought I knew about autism. And I had, you know, I held all those same assumptions that loads of people hold about autism now that I now find like deeply undermining and offensive. And I, yeah. I had exactly that same thought process of like, oh, yeah, I've been through this before. I totally, as soon as, you know, as soon as that stuff really hit the mainstream, I just thought, yeah, I recognise this completely and I can almost unquestioningly accept it because actually I know exactly what it is to find myself in conversations with people that that kind of ends in a pause when they realise that they're about to say something that's offensive to you and that they would normally say it or... Yeah, yes, they can see the end of the street and they've realised they don't want yeah. to go down it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or when people say, well, I don't mean autistic people like you, but of course, and you're yeah. like, oh, yes. you know. <laughs> the real ones, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I also feel, I know, sound like quite self-aggrandizing. And now I'm like Britain's most woke woman. <laughs> I, what, it, what I have got is a confidence to know how little I know mm. and that I learned that privately rather than because of some horrendous social media faux pas, which I think you see public yeah. figures going through. And I'm just very lucky that I went, I, you know, I will happily now, if corrected or see a shadow across someone's face, I feel confident enough now to say, what was it? Educate me quick. Interesting. <laughs> Whereas yeah. before I would have tried to talk a bit faster and hope oh, no one had noticed I'd said something awful and then not sleep for three weeks. Yeah. And now I kind of, I feel confident enough in my curiosity and my willingness to understand different viewpoints that that terror of what are they going to get me on? Because realistically, it could be anything. You could find anything. I've, prob I've probably, I could probably, you know, hang up this podcast now and go and find five old articles, which make me cringe. But yeah. I can at least say I did try to see the world differently and it did make my life better as well. Isn't um, that kind of wonderful? I mean, like, I, it's lovely to have the reverse of the conversation that I've had with so many people, which is like, we are under threat. Like we can't say anything, you know, yeah. people are out there waiting to get us. And when they do, they're going to cancel us and we're all in trouble. And it's so <laughs> dangerous to be a white person in this world, or whatever, you know, like I've just, I've heard people say it and I, yeah, like, it's so easy to have the opposite conversation, which is to say, there are some things I don't know and there are some experiences I don't understand. And actually mm. what my experience has taught me is that I probably am screwing up a whole load of things and I'm willing to hear it if I am and just go, oh, I'm so sorry. And that and that and I know that that's all people want from me is to just be able yes. to hear them. Yeah, it's it's so true. And also I'm now finding like I've been separated from my ex for four years now and we're sort of coming up for two years since the summer of all the Black Lives Matter protests. And I can see personally quite a clear mark now where the authors or creators, you know, even if they're like stand-ups or whatever, mm. who I'm really interested in their material are increasingly proving to be the people who are staying curious about mm. wider social issues. And especially with people a generation older than me who were the kind of writers who were interested in how the 20-somethings of today see the world. You don't have to go, oh yeah, I totally adhere to every single thing I've ever seen on TikTok, the 20-somethings have absolutely got it nailed. <laughs> but to be someone who goes the, in the other direction and says, the youth of today, you know, oh, man. Who thought we'd fringes. be saying that? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, 
It seems so kind of obvious that a consistent and compassionate interest in multiple perspectives will make better art. But why would you entrench yourself and not try and look at that, see that as part of making better art rather than being just under attack? Mm, Um, I love um, that. I love that so much. (laughs) (laughs) But it's it's really true. Like even, you know... You look at something like I became obsessed over Christmas, obviously, like so many other people, by watching Get Back, you know, the million oh, yes. hour long. Yeah, be- yeah, I, yeah. You know, by by 2022, I believed I was a really quite <laughs> crucial part of the Beatles. Um, <laughs> uh, but yes, watching, and, and I found it really compelling as a writer watching a collaborative creative process mm. and the amount of times that they, you know, they were all driving each other mad and they were all, you know, obviously about to break up but it was really interesting seeing the amount of times you have to stop and listen and then you know they all debunk to George's house because he's in a half and then there's you know trying to get John you know and then there's an amazing scene where two of them like Paul McCartney and I think is it Ringo go off and they sit no it's Paul and Paul and John in the canteen at um the film studios discussing George and they and you can really see them trying to understand his point of view to work out why they've had this big falling out. Mm. And it just seemed so obvious that a group that could articulate themselves emotionally in a, in a decades-long friendship since childhood would make interesting things. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and it was it was fascinating to me that I sort of idea of actively watching people trying to understand each other's perspectives. And why they were just in a grump at lunch and see how obviously that would then imprint itself on a series of songs. It's so, really yeah. interesting. <laughs> I mean, it would, it would have been better if I'd turned up, obviously. And yeah, well, obviously. You could have solved it. I mean, it would have been fine. <laughs> Everything would have been okay. And they'd have carried on making really terrible records into the yeah. 80s. <laughs> it would be like Genesis or something. You'd be like, oh, God, I wish the Beatles had split up in the 70s. <laughs> We can all be grateful that they hated each other for a little while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, like I I worry about, because like one of, one of the things that I try and follow is like I try not to externalise the things I dislike in the world and look for the bit of me that that reflects when I'm reacting against it. And I like one of the things I think about a lot in myself is my unwillingness to find a middle way with people mm. who I consider to be beyond the pale. And I was yes. talking to somebody yesterday in my Pilates class and she was saying about an upstairs neighbour of her who sounds like a holy nightmare. I mean, like, you know, she's like had to talk her down from smashing a police car with a hammer and all this kind of thing. She oh sounds God. like she sounds like a lot. But I was so interested to hear the person in my class say, so I've had to work really hard to get on with her. And, you know, we've come to terms. And I thought, wow, I would... Wow. I don't know if I'm capable of that. She's older than me. And I I did wonder if, you know, that's like my kind of intolerance writ larger. But I mean, I know that's a really extreme example, but would I see it as my responsibility to find a way to get on with this woman? Or would I be trying to like get her, Bring you know, her, down. Get her evicted? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I, it did make me wonder about myself. Yes, it's, it is. It's really interesting. And I think that's an interesting question at a point in society where we've been literally isolated from each other. Mm. So there's all kinds of, you could probably like put your head out of your front door any given day and see, you know, someone shouting at someone at a traffic light or any of those things. 
that wouldn't have happened to the same degree if we hadn't all spent half of the last couple of years yeah. um, literally avoiding each other. And also the sort of hyper-connectivity of being online all the time. I find it really difficult. And I've, wa- I mean, I say wasted, maybe it was really super valuable and I'll be really insightful for decades to come. <laughs> but I feel, <laughs> I feel sure. at the moment like I've wasted an, a phenomenal amount of my own life on trying to work out at what point you know, hashtag speaking out is worth it on social media Mm. or whether you're just, you know, stamping the grass down in the pathways more and making the algorithm learn that more money is to be made here and more clicks are to be made here. And when speaking out is of value and when it's just adding to the sort of heat and light and ghastliness of social media and when actually kind of being (laughs) taking the loftier Zadie Smith type route of saying (laughs) I'm only responsible for my how I live my life and I will try to do that as well and as ethically as possible and to do it offline like I, I heard her um, at the end of the summer of 2020 on the Adam Buxton podcast and I thought it was a really interesting interview because she's such an offline person mm. and where she sees where does social responsibility lie if you don't have social media accounts to just repost stuff on god isn't it terrible that I find it hard to imagine like I yeah, can't imagine like, not being you slightly there. feel like well what 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 is there to do if not retweet? <laughs> and, yeah. and you know, that sentence was a big part of me leaving Twitter was wow. if that's what I think doing good things is, I need to not have that crutch. That's and I'm so not saying, you know, I haven't you know, rebuilt a, a you know church hall for <laughs> For media or anything in the nine months or so since left Twitter, but it has made me more conscious of how. Mm. I mean, obviously, because I'm not scrolling online a lot of the time, but it it does. I find it fascinating trying to work out that boundary of at what point I try to. I tend to say to myself if I think there because I only have Instagram left, and I think if there's something where I have a specific insight then I'll share it Mm. if it's in any way unique to me. But the rest of the time, I'll I'll just leave it and try and do something concrete, like send a text. If I see like something's blowing up online, some sort of, as happens, you know, every few months, there's some sort of publishing hoo-ha about something. There is, yep. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Uh And and I really went, when I left Twitter, I really went out of my way to find, everyone's got an email address, even if you have to go through their agent or whatever. And I went through a period of specifically finding people's emails or numbers and messaging them and saying, instead of just retweeting something, going, I don't know you, but I want you to know that you're supported. And I've read what you've said about this thing and you're not alone in thinking it. And wow. if there are concrete steps mm. I can take, tell me. And things like That's that. Amazing. You know, it. I quite often feel exhausted by the little <laughs> advocacy I do online. Yes. Because find you, myself to, yeah because you it's it's everything isn't it yeah is it worth it is it worth not doing it mm. are you doing it for the right reason and we we can't ever answer any of those questions completely or truthfully anyway so the whole thing's doubly <laughs> exhausting because there's no sort of wizard of oz who's gonna whip back the curtain and go well done you advocated <laughs> for these people well because yeah. <laughs> they're all individuals too <laughs> 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm just interrupting you for a moment to ask if you'd consider subscribing to my Patreon. Friends of the Wintering Sessions get an extended edition of the podcast a day early, the chance to put questions to my guests, a monthly bonus episode and exclusive discounts on my courses and events. Most of all, you help to keep the podcast running. To find out more, go to patreon.com forward slash Catherine May. Do take a look. Now back to the show. I do think sometimes, you know, we just contribute to noise being made. Yeah. And profit. Yeah. But will never share any of it with me. (laughs) Yes. Well, that is also true. I mean, there was there was a statistic that was going around recently and I've not fact checked this, so I'm wary of it. But it said that something like 95 percent of all the anti-vax propaganda online was generated by 12 Facebook or originated in 12 Facebook accounts. Wow. And yeah. and all of those people have become millionaires from that Just that hit, storm that yeah. they've cooked up, and that makes you that connection between the numbers, the concentration of it, and the economics is I mm. is what I find breathtaking. Really, that, that there's a there's a very clear motivation here. Yeah, and that's part of in um, somebody to love when I wrote about I there's because the book has it's it's got memoir of what happened to me. And then it sort of does a bit of a back loop of my previous two books and how much I was forced to sort of reconfront them. And a big part of running like a girl and the promo around that was sort of photographs of me where there was this constant push pull where I was writing a book that was saying, we're all feeling so exhausted and, and a leap into a degree because of some swimwear. Mm, We mm. feel all so exhausted by having to look right to do exercise because marketing images will only ever use perfect colored, perfect bodied, able-bodied 
um, smiling, kind of calm women in all that market. And this has changed a lot. I was writing uh, Running Like a Girl 10 years ago now. And the reality is, is that we're sweating and red faced and feel hilarious and feel like we're not, we shouldn't be allowed in the club because we don't look right. So we've got a big weird lolloping gait when we run or um, yep. <laughs> blobby bits that you can't even see when you're in the water, when you're swimming and all of those things. While at the same time, trying to promote the book was a series of sort of being put into often sort of design a running kit and having photographers who are used to taking, oh, you know, please tell this Sundays. story. Because I, I, I related, I had a very similar experience experience to the story you relate in Somebody to Love about uh, the photo shoot with the designer clothes and the oh. all-male styling team. Yeah, all-male. And, you know, I feel like it was a different time. Nobody involved <laughs> was trying to be cruel. Everybody thought this was a lovely, glamorous and exciting opportunity mm. for me. But the way that these things are commissioned out was that the person who'd maybe commissioned the piece had probably read the book or read some of the book enough to know that they wanted to use me but the people who commissioned the photo and the person who took the photo and the person who did the makeup and the hair none of them knew what they did it was a running book it's a woman's running book in this fancy Sunday supplement so they all thought they were doing me an absolute solid to send down a suitcase worth of designer running gear and put loads of makeup on me and then then they were all just so visibly disappointed. And, you know, again, <laughs> I am not in any way someone who's in any position to be kind of bigging it up about plus size, you know, plus size culture. Yeah, I'm yeah, like, sure. at that point, I probably was size 12. And they were so visibly disappointed, not just in my body, but in the fact that bits of it moved up and down when I was in motion. And you realise how synthetic those sort of covers or the cover of like those old school running magazines. They always, like a woman sort of suspended on a desert track, smiling and not sweating. And they never had boobs. And, you know, when you run, your boobs go up in the air. And if that's the point at which the photographer takes the photo, you look... You do look weird, but also when they're in flight. it's not weird. And it only looks weird because no one else in the history of space and time had ever depicted anyone over size <laughs> eight uh, running. <laughs> and it was just mortifying because they really wanted me to have these super glamorous, but also relatable shots. <laughs> and I felt utterly demoralized by it and guilty for being demoralized by it because that was yeah. the opposite of what my book was saying and i felt like i couldn't tell anybody because i'd be like dobbing myself yeah. in <laughs> oh so i did nothing for a whole decade <laughs> yeah and there's there's the seeds of a whole instagram culture there but i i had a really similar experience about the same time i had a book out and um i was invited for a photo shoot at a, a big women's magazine but one of the more relatable ones like not one of the glosses um well it was <laughs> Yeah, in between, in between, you know, more for middle-aged women. Anyway, um, I probably positioned it exactly in the market enough for everyone to know which magazine it was now. But I, uh, you know, I had the, the same as you, like asking me what my what dress size was before I turned up and my shoe size, which I provided. I'm a size, I was at the time a size 16. I'm now not a 16, I'm more than that. And also my shoe size, which was a size eight. Mm-hmm. And... I pointed out that I'm very tall and therefore, you know, most clothes do not fit me even if they're in the right size. And therefore I will bring my own clothes because, you know, I know that you won't hit lucky because I rarely hit lucky. Yeah. Turned 
up and they had a rail of clothes ready for me and they the jeans we we got you size 12 jeans because I wondered if you could squeeze into them and I was like oh my god if I could squeeze into size 12 jeans I would have said I was a size 12 do you know what I mean like sque- like yeah. if I fit into a size 12 I'm going to tell you I'm a size 12 I've told you I'm a size 16 which you know given the economics that most women work on probably means a little bit larger than that sometimes too yeah. and size 5 shoes that had a 4 inch heel well I'm 6 oh foot my- already ready and I was like I can't wear these clothes I can't I I cannot put these clothes on my body these clothes don't fit on my body and this this look of like intense disappointment and like eye rolling and and you know so because I felt so ashamed of myself I went on and tried to squeeze myself into the two sizes two small jeans and and hey hey guess what they didn't fit so I then had to say, yeah. well, look, I've got a bag of clothes. Like, can I wear these? Mm, well, they're not. I mean, these these are just not very fashionable. They said, I was like, well, I'm not very fashionable. Like, it, you're representing yeah. a writer here. Like, it, I'm not a fashion icon in any way and I'm not pretending to be. And so in the end, the compromise was reached that I uh, could wear my own dress, but I had to pretend to wear the the size five shoes. Oh, God, like the ugly sisters. Yeah, like the freaking ugly sisters. <laughs> And and as I and I cried like I was I mean I, I was in physical yeah. pain but I felt so humiliated but the but the stylist looked at me and she said we had a load of women with cancer before you they didn't make a fuss <gasps> I was like, oh, my oh my word <laughs> and this is something this is a positive of social media yeah is that it it created space and air for a plurality of voices because the stranglehold Mm. that women's magazines run by skinny white women had for decades over what being a woman would be and could be and should be and you know because I was I was books editor for one of the glossies for for nearly a decade earlier on in my career and I, I remember endlessly like bringing authors to them to review or interview and then the answer coming back no once the their photo had been seen like it couldn't sort of besmirch the magazine and mm. yeah the, the shoots some of the shoots not all of the shoots and there are always exceptions etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah. but I found the publicity campaign for running like a girl in particular really demoralizing and and again mm. and Ooh. then I I paid a photographer and it cost me quite a lot and I was lucky to know a photographer that I trusted to take shots of me for leap in and I was like I wish more people could understand that that's empowering like saving up for the money to represent yourself as you see yourself at your best (laughs) is not empowering to be ennobled by a glossy magazine Mm -hmm. who's saying girl boss blah 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 at the bottom of the caption while making you cry because your feet are too big yeah and you're literally you know squeezed into painful shoes (laughs) yeah I can be really down on social media but definitely let chinks of light in which are ever Mm -hmm. being widened which industries like women's magazines were extremely reluctant to give up on. And it's no coincidence to me that a lot of the generation of people that are now the most vocal anti-trans ones were Mm. 20, 30 years ago, gatekeepers of that kind of journalism and that they are not dealing well (laughs) with questions being asked. (laughs) No, because they... They thought they were the ones who could claim victimhood and they were actually all all along victimising a lot of other people, but it was just yeah. very, very and silent. Don't get me wrong. I think being a journalist in the 90s, if your choice was being treated like Queen Bee at a women's magazine 
or mm. having your bum pinched on a desk at one of the <laughs> dailies while all the men were out getting pissed for four hour lunches and you did all the work and didn't get the bylines. I'm not pretending yeah. that that was necessarily an easy time to be a woman either. But the point <laughs> is you stay curious and you don't yeah. say, well, it was hard for me back then, so it can't be hard for you now because these small number of things have changed. <laughs> It's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, it actually, what's lovely about this conversation is I think it's been a lot about the invisible ways that, that society has changed already and is changing. I mean, we, we have not reached the perfect set, state of, of existence by any means. But, <laughs> no. but wow, the difference in power I have over my own representation now and 10 years ago is huge. And that's partly because the tools are there for me to do it. But it's also because the conversations exist that allow me to find a community that will back me up if I say, I didn't want to wear clothes that were two sizes too small and shoes that didn't fit me to, yeah. to squeeze into an image that, that isn't me in the first place. Yeah, definitely. Mm. And I, I found going through all those previously mentioned three things that are the sort mm. of core of somebody to love. Really, really difficult. But I ultimately found the experience hugely cathartic by the time I'd finished writing the book because it had it allowed me to revisit things like those photo shoots for Running Like a Girl, which at the time I definitely didn't feel able to articulate were painful or difficult because I was being told, your book's a success. Everything must be going brilliantly for you. But there's still this feeling of like the queasy sloshing of mm. <laughs> adrenaline in the pit of your stomach. And, and it made me kind of realise how far I'd come and we'd come. And even though during the summer of 2020, when the conversations around trans lives were becoming super toxic and I was pre-publication of Somebody to Love, I was extremely aware of what the kind of blowback could be for me personally or for our family. And like, there was a real struggle for me with being honest about my experiences and acknowledging the rage and the pain that I'd felt while not making an eternal testament to the most negative feelings I've had about my family. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And then now I actually feel quite hopeful a lot of the time about things like trans lives and, uh, the conversation around them because I see I think before I was looking at it from a very UK specific um, perspective and now I see globally things are changing for the positive quite mm. at quite mm. a pace when I was still with my ex she for her work had to go to some sort of conference in Geneva and they had a conversation around self-ID and trans lives in Switzerland and the, and the Swiss were like yeah we are really far from that that's not going to happen right. and that and it was announced a couple of weeks ago so yeah the it's idea moving. that the Swiss mm. who were four I was it was just before I fell pregnant so five years ago the Swiss were saying yeah we're really long way from that don't hedge your bets at, at which point the Theresa May government was looking like was going to make positive changes mm. and although it's depressing for us in the UK, it's exciting to see that other countries, things can just change really quickly yeah, and yeah, public yeah. moods do just shift and they do and they will. And that that is exciting. And I think that, that's, that, that the ever-flowing river of public opinion <laughs> is 
is not going to stop flowing. <laughs> I, I think it's often like just an issue of what people have come into contact with and minds change very quickly when they are presented with real life examples rather than, you know, these abstracted yes. rants in the Daily Mail. I mean, I yeah. Yeah. And whether things are presented in the context of shame, I think that's really important. I mm. think that that's something that's really shifted with uh, mental health in the last 10 years was it used to be depression was seen purely as a flaw and people like Bryony Gordon have done amazing things in that that kind of area and that it was something to be ashamed of and I really wanted with somebody to love to be really open and honest about the pain that I felt because to pretend it hadn't happened would only make other people feel terrible about feeling all parts of the process Mm. but also to acknowledge that I have a really fantastic relationship with my ex. We are amazing co-parents. We are definitely a family, even if we're not a marriage. And to acknowledge that without shame and that I made like what what many would see, loads of people I've seen online have said, well, how could she have not known? (laughs) Things like that. Like, well... You know, <laughs> some things aren't blindingly obvious. <laughs> and yeah. and I refuse to be ashamed for the choices I made because they ended up with a situation that I'm really proud of now. And mm. I'm so proud that I got us to where it was my dogged nagging and asking and are you okay? What's the problem? What's the problem? That got us to where we are now. And I could have just shut up and pretended I hadn't seen anything and gone being normal is what counts. And I, as long as I can yeah. just stay married and my son can have two parents, a mum and a dad. And <laughs> But I, I didn't value those things over what I could tell wasn't the truth. Mm. I think getting rid of shame is a really important part of I I often find when you see like MPs being appalled by things (laughs) um, I always (laughs) I I always find it just quite revealing when they do a tweet and you just think wow you really um you're resting with shame there aren't you (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you're saying what you think you're saying in that one mate (laughs) (laughs) you're telling us a lot well, I mean, I I just think it's such a redemptive book, honestly. I really like culturally redemptive as well as individually redemptive. And I'm so glad that you had the courage to write it because I know it must have taken it. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and along those lines, I note that you've you've written a novel now, which is possibly a move away from memoir because you can't face it again, but also <laughs> very much to our gain. Um, can you tell me a bit about your your novel that's coming up next year? This year, sorry. Yes. I'm, we have moved into 2022 now, I yeah. think. Um, it, I was supposed to write the novel before Somebody to Love and I went on a research trip I went to Norway because most of the novel set in North Norway and actually what happened was I had such an amazing time on that trip and sort of gave up drinking for for, uh, several months and felt it was the first moment of clarity that I had mentally and my son I think was two at that point and I was supposed to come back and sit down and write the novel and actually somebody to love fell out of my head first I felt like I couldn't write around it so writing the novel later was kind of a, a real treat and it's it's about two sisters who don't know each other exist and what the, their shared father dies and then the sort of younger of the sisters who's grown up in the suburbs not without much sense of direction and not quite knowing what she wants to do has to go and find the other sister and let her know 
that their dad's died and she's chosen to go off quite understandably <laughs> and live in North Norway up in the kind of archipelago of islands that's up in the Arctic Circle and has just completely cut herself off and it's sort of a, a mutual thawing um, <laughs> Ooh, love, I, you know, I love a wintry metaphor. I'm all for this. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to sort of write an adventure story for girls. I wanted to do kind of like tin tinny scenes where someone was <laughs> kind of hanging off the edge of a cliff for dear life and things like that but to do it with an emotional resonance that you perhaps don't get in Jack London novels. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> you have to dig quite hard, that's all. <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, it's weird. You would think that writing memoir would be as exposing as it can get, but then as with the MP tweets thing, mm. I, there's there's a lingering terror before the publication of a novel where you think, oh my God, are people going to read things that I didn't know I was writing? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, what we're all looking I for said, that subtext all the time now. Yet, <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, it sounds wonderful and I can't wait to read it. And um, yeah, well, I wish you all the all the publishing luck with it. I'm sure you will. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's been fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much. Um, and I will obviously make sure that everybody can find links to you and your, your various locations in the show notes. Um, okay. if, even if you are gradually cutting down on those for very sensible reasons. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> This rock is where Alex is on Thursdays. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. It's at this time of year that I always think I should become a gardener, not like an actual professional gardener, but just somebody who does their garden occasionally. It's not my skill in life. It should be by rights. But everything I plant dies. In fact, I'm just looking into my garden at the moment. I had somebody in to plant my garden out and to clear it in the autumn because I just knew I was never going to get round to it and I was beginning to feel overwhelmed. And he dug everything up, planted new plants. And now we've had some builders in and they've put a load of wood on top of my garden <laughs> which I know didn't look like much and there's sawdust all over it and full disclosure the dog has dug up a couple of the plants repeatedly and I've given up replanting them again. I have a friend who said to me recently I just don't know what you do to gardens and I don't either. I can't work out why I can't just have a garden like a normal person. It always gets full of rubble somehow. I don't know. I think I'm just not very domestic. I think I was born without that gene. I always thought I was, you know. Come as a shock. Well, anyway. Spring is springing and perhaps things will grow soon and perhaps I will replant some new things to replace the ones that have been a bit squashed by the people who had to take my bathroom floor out because it was rotting. My big crisis this week is that my staircase has been found to have woodworm and also that it has never been attached to the wall or at least not for a long time. So luckily we haven't ever fallen through it but that has caused a building emergency this week. Adult life is fun what can I tell you? I'm very grateful to be able to afford to have someone in to mend it. Certainly hasn't always been the case in my life. I hope you'll all pick up Alex Heminsley's book after listening to her. Somebody to Love comes out in paperback on the 24th of March in the UK. 
And she's also got a novel coming out soon too, as she talked about Under the Same Stars, which I've not had the privilege of reading yet, but I'm sure it would be great. She's one of our really enduringly readable voices in the UK, I think. I don't know how much she's reached into the US. Maybe you guys are discovering her for the first time. But anyway, I really enjoyed that conversation. As you know, I think I run this podcast just to have a good chat with people sometimes. It's been in a bit short supply over the last few years. I'm not losing my enthusiasm either. So I want to say thank you to the producer, Buddy Peace, and to Megan Hutchins, who looks after all the details, and to my Patreon community, who are just reeling from... (laughs) I don't think they're reeling. uh, The first ever live bonus episode that we did for the wintering sessions, uh, which they were already getting once a month, but now I've started to do them live and on video so that just they can watch and then they get it as a recording afterwards. And I've had great fun and, you know, done a lot of thinking, answering all the members' questions. I really enjoy that and trying to provide my cultural highlights such as they are. If you can, do join the Patreon community. We've got some really good stuff coming up too, some changes to be made, some additional things. It's really worth being there, I think. I'm really proud of it. And it helps keep this podcast running and not just having to do short seasons, as I've done before, but to keep it running on and on. It just makes it possible. And it helps to do things like make sure it's accessible by getting it transcribed every episode which to me is really important. I hope it's, you know, something that you guys appreciate too. There's lots of different people who find transcription to be helpful. It's not always the obvious people. Anyway, you understand that. I don't need to tell you that. I will be back very soon with another episode and another brilliant conversational partner. But until then, take enormous care, do what you can, and make sure you give yourself a rest too. All right, guys, see you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 